This is Lisa Murkowski, Chairman of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee with Murkowski's Message Podcast. So hello to everyone. Welcome to our fourth episode of Murkowski's Message. This is Thursday, June the 4th. Uh, Thank you for, for joining with us today. Before we get into our, our program here, I, I do want to start by acknowledging just really what a, a challenging and difficult time uh, this has been for, for our country. When we think about this cascade of, of a pandemic, um, the economic shutdown, uh, what we're dealing with as a nation with the, with the tragic, tragic death of, of George Floyd, the, the, the lawful protests, the violence, the vandalism, all that has just gripped our nation. And we know we need to address, we must address all of these issues, but how we do so thoughtfully and, and peacefully is so important. So I would certainly encourage all to focus on, on positive resolution, each of us to do to do our part to, to help reach it. So I wanted to to introduce a topic today that has been a discussion for several months, and that is the status of the global oil markets. This is clearly critical to our U.S. economy. It's going to be critical as we recover from the pandemic. We know that within the oil and gas industry, this is a uh, this is a this is a real jobs sector. The industry supports uh, 10 million American jobs thereabouts over the past couple months, we saw a dramatic decrease in demand. Uh, then you had the Saudi-Russian uh, price war, um, and we, from that we saw even more of a glut in, in supply. So we're at a situation where U.S. and global production are down um, significantly. Uh, a number of American companies have declared bankruptcy, laid off workers. We've certainly seen the laid off workers in my state of Alaska, the cancellation of, of projects. So to explain what's going on and what may be coming, I'm joined today by two um, recognized experts, to the best guys in Washington, D.C., um, on the energy market uh, analysis. Uh, we have Kevin Book, who heads the research team at Clearview Energy Partners. He's a member of the National Petroleum Council, which advises the Secretary of Energy. And we also have Bob McNally. Bob is president of uh, the Rapidan uh, Energy Group. He, he served uh, in the White House as an international and a domestic energy advisor to President George W. Bush. We've had both of you before the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee a couple times. So it's nice to, to have you uh, with us today by way of a podcast, a little bit different um, venue than being in the committee room. But uh, as I mentioned, you've, you've testified, you've come before us as experts, and you certainly are uh, this morning as we're talking about these matters related to, to the oil and gas sector. So let's, let's begin with um, just a little bit of context here. Because uh, I think that the word unprecedented is perhaps overused these days. Uh, I know coming from Alaska that uh, oil markets, oil prices, oil politics uh, are, are volatile. They always have been. Uh, you know, Bob, you actually wrote a book called Crude Volatility. But, but a world where both futures and physical markets had oil trading for zero dollars 
and, and even negative dollars was, was just truly unprecedented. So to kind of start the conversation um, here today, can, can you each give me, it's not really fair to just give it to me in one word, but maybe a phrase besides unprecedented that captures whatever it is that we're seeing going on right now. Um, uh, how would you describe it with your view and your expertise? So Kevin, let's, let's start with you. Thanks, Chairman Murkowski. Uh, I think there are a lot of words or phrases that industry players were probably using uh, in the last few months, but they're maybe not suitable for family audiences. So I, if I have to pick a word, I might pick sobering. If I have to pick a phrase, I, I might pick wake-up call. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as we've discussed, markets, markets can be cruel. Uh, they're swift, and the oil market uh, can, can move very, very fast. Uh, it's usually pretty tightly strung, but when it comes unstrung, you know, it's, it's a wake-up call. It, it's no longer just a number on a screen anymore uh, to, to anybody who's watching. You know, the people in the industry have, have known what they've been up against for a while, but when you see the number zero or a negative price, uh, even if you're watching at home without any knowledge about what the oil industry is, you know something very, very big has happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I saw the negative, I thought it's, is this really possible? Is this really possible? But uh, a wake-up call is, is 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 clearly what we're dealing with. Bob, what do you think? Chairman Mikowski, it's great to be here with you and Kevin. I agree. It was a wake-up call, uh, and in the background, not one but two black swans suddenly appearing. Uh, the first black swan was, I'm sorry, but an unprecedentedly fast <laughs> and sharp collapse in oil demand. You just don't see a 25-30% collapse in global oil demand uh, in a month or two. Um, and then the second black swan in the face of the first one was Saudi Arabia and Russia deciding to call it quit and walk out of the meeting uh, there in Vienna on March 6th. And not only that, but everyone sort of go back to full production. So we had a sudden abdication of the swing producer. Those two things brought us to zero on the oil prices. And then I think some inexperienced retail investors, especially in China, brought us to negative $37. But by my count, you have to go back to 1930-31 for the last time you saw a sudden supply surge, and I'm thinking now of the black giant field in East Texas, in the teeth of a Great Depression. Um, and even then, it all didn't happen as fast as it just has in the last few months. Unprecedented. I mean, we keep coming back to that. Yeah, and you've got you've got some folks that have been around the industry for a long time. You've got a lot of analysts that have been looking and forecasting, and uh, this this one is clearly one for the books. So let's let's talk a little bit about oil prices. Um, you know, we we saw a quick recovery from from the. Uh, just the rock bottom um, negative uh, prices uh, that we saw during the peak of the collapse at the end of April. Uh, we now see West Texas um, in the mid 30s, uh, Brent a little bit higher in the in the higher 30s. Um, so so here's the question that everybody wants to know the answer to, and that is where do where do you think prices are headed this year? Yeah pull out that crystal ball. So, Bob, you get to take the, the tough one first. 
All right, very treacherous to have to do this. Um, but um, we, we, we have to think of the world now in two ways. One is a successful uh, emergence from the corona pandemic and an unsuccessful one, because that really determines whether we're headed uh, still into the 30s, that we'll stay in the 30s and maybe start touching the 40s later this year, uh, or whether we have to go back down into the teens, if not single digits. In a, in a happy scenario where the worst of the pandemic is behind us and demand recovers, a jet will take a long time. The airlines could take a while, but we see gasoline demand, places like China looking pretty strong, uh, and we see diesel, that distillate fuel, is the real barometer of economic activity, and it's in the doghouse right now. But So if we assume decent GDP growth with the OPEC plus quote uh, cuts, I think we can hold the more or less the gains we have, so WTI in the 30s, high 30s, Brent a little bit higher than that, and as we go, again, assuming no, no recession, no, no real deep downturn, and this is being somewhat optimistic, if not Pollyannish, uh, you know, I think we're going to be setting up later in the decade, and maybe we'll talk about this later, for a massive boom in oil prices. Because busts mm -hmm. like these, uh, they do two things. They sow the both of which sow the seeds of the next boom. They, uh, they uh, dissuade investment, they disincentivize investment and supply, and they keep folks from wanting to buy efficient equipment. And so it's harder to buy an EV at eighty a gasoline uh, at the pump. So I think we're setting up for a boom later this decade. Uh, and if we, um, if we don't, if we have a successful emergence from this pandemic, then I think we will uh, probably hold our gains here in the 30 and $40 range in the next year or two. Kevin, do you agree with him? Well, I, I do. Um, he, uh, he gave a pretty comprehensive answer, so maybe what I'll do is offer some color commentary. Uh, when you hear the number 30 or 35, you know, you might say, well, if I look back over the history of oil prices in real dollar terms, current uh, adjusted for inflation over time, today's dollars, about $35 a barrel is about the average price. So what's so bad about that? But that's a little bit like asking, would I want to drive a car that, you know, performs like the average car over the 100 plus year of the auto industry? Would I, would I want to go to a doctor who's got outcomes like the, the doctors over the history of medicine on average? No, you want, you want sort of the recent tale. And uh, a lot of what we got out of the ground recently came out at a higher price. And so when you ask, you know, what, what does it mean to be stuck in the 30s uh, or, you know, optimistically in the low 40s? What it means in the near years is a lot of hardship for producers whose economics don't work at that price. And uh, that, that means that if you, if you ask, you know, is it good to go up almost 100% in the month of May? Yeah, 100% gains or 90% gains in a price, that's the stuff that investors talk about for the rest of their lives. But what matters is where you started. Uh, and we started well below the break-even price for a lot of the new oil in the United States. And we're still below the break-even price for a good portion of it. So uh, with that in mind, you know, uh, there's still more hardship at this price. We're looking now at the concerns uh, related to, to investment, um, underinvestment, and, and what that might, might bring about. Um, uh, certainly a great deal of uncertainty there. Um, Bob, you, as I mentioned, you, you, you wrote the book literally called crude volatility. But um, speak to the issue here about over time the, 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 the likelihood or the possibility that the current underinvestment coupled with renewed economic growth 
could could lead to this boom that that uh, that you both um, suggested. Uh, so I think we we'll start with you again. Well, start with you, Kevin. Okay. Well, let me let me be the first uh, since Bob would be too modest to recommend his book. Uh, it's a great book on volatility, and uh, it addresses I think that among other things, uh, supply takes a while to come on. Uh, it also takes a while, much of the time, to stop. Uh, this is what economists often refer to as inelasticity. And demand is, for, for the most part, one of the, the really distinguishing features of what happened with the coronavirus pandemic is that demand moved swiftly when ordinarily it moves quite slowly uh, and takes a while to adjust. So the oil market is like one of those cartoons where the characters are running around the corners and they're skidding each time they turn because they've got so much momentum they can't quite make the turn and their feet take a while to catch up. And it overshoots to the upside and to the downside. But one of the, the, the realities of that is that the upside comes after the downside. And so uh, it isn't, it isn't a, a bad prediction. And it's, it's probably made better by the fact that there's going to be uh, a new world of, of economic growth if everything goes well uh, at exactly the time when there's been so little investment uh, in, the, in the fear that everything might not you could get a, a reasonably significant spike uh, in oil prices. And there's, there's a good side to that from the oil industry's perspective and a bad one. The good side, uh, of course, is higher prices make the industry happier, better, better performance for their, their companies. The bad side is that it also encourages a lot of folks to look at alternatives with renewed interest, including transitions to electric vehicles and other types of transportation. So, so Bob, you get an opportunity. You just got a big plug for your book there. So that's. that's yeah, I know. I, I really um, appreciate it, Kevin. Yep. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. But 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 also, you know, um, Kevin has has mentioned just the, the the demand growth. You know, there's some out there that have said we've lost a, de a decade of global demand growth in a month. So, um, I, will will we re do we return to the pre-pandemic demand levels? Or, or is that peak demand kind of in that rear view? Well, uh, thank you. And I do appreciate the plug, Kevin. And the book is, of course, available on Amazon and quality booksellers. So I really appreciate that. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the demand, uh, in my view, in our view, uh, demand for oil is not near a, near a peak. And you have really identified the key question. Uh, because whether or not you have underinvestment in supply, partly depends on whether what your demand is in the future. If we're all going to be in electric vehicles, you don't need so much supply. So the fact that we're dropping CapEx 25% a year is not a big problem if everyone's going to be driving an uh, electric vehicle in 2030. I think this is a really important point, and I, I'd like to maybe, like Kevin, maybe dig in a little bit. If you look at the prevailing forecasts from the, the thought leaders, EIA, IEA, and OPEC, and you say, what have they been, before the pandemic, what did they say oil demand was going to do in the world in, the, in this decade? And they see demand growing by less than a percent a year. About three, four hundred, five hundred thousand 500,000 barrels a day. I think IEA may be close to 900,000 barrels a day. So, um, a, a, but they, they don't, that's a very low rate. Uh, uh, less than a percent in a world is, they always assume a world growing at three and a half. Normally we'd, we'd forecast and we've seen in the past a world growing at three and a half is a world that's going to be thirsty to the tune of about a percent and a half or so of demand, but they don't see that. So why are they seeing such for, slow demand? And it's not because of a recession. They don't forecast that. They forecast a rapid sort of peak and dec decline in demand in, ga in gasoline and the OECD in the United States, and then a, a slowing and a peaking in demand globally. 
and I think that's due to policy-driven decarbonization. Now, uh, no question, decarbonization is real, the transition is real, the politics are real. We see that every single day in boardrooms and so forth. Uh, but I think uh, the forecasts for this dramatic slowing in oil demand driven by policy are overstated. And so if we wake up, Senator Rakowski, in a couple years and we realize maybe we were too optimistic about how fast the EVs would come, and we're in a world that needs closer to one and a half million barrels a day, each year, not a half a million barrels a day to meet consumer demand. And now we're going to really lament this underinvestment that's going on right now because, as Kevin mentioned so astutely, you can't just turn on supply like a spigot. So the risk is uh, we wake up in a few years, we're thirstier than we thought we'd be for oil. The transition got delayed, and lo and behold, we don't have the supply we need. That's the ingredients for a price boom. Let's talk a little bit about about OPEC and, and OPEC Plus and, and the, the role there. Um, uh, obviously, uh, well, I guess it was now, gosh, it seems like a long time ago, but it was just in, in, in mid-April uh, as, as the agreement was being reached there, uh, the, the production cuts moving forward here, some further discussion, but I think we'd all recognize that there's there's uncertainty about what comes next for the OPEC plus group. Give me your read uh, on, on that as it intersects with everything else we've been talking about here. Bob, why don't you okay, go should I, Okay, sure. Uh, so picking up on Kevin's comment, the wake-up call, absolutely right. This has been a wake-up call of how important having an effective swing producer in the oil market is for price stability. That black giant problem in the 1930s and 31s uh, started the Texas Railroad Commission in Oklahoma and other states into four decades of quota management so strict, I think I mentioned to your committee once, uh, that Mao Zedong would have blushed at the heavy-handed intervention practiced by the Railroad Commission of Texas over four decades. And that was important to anchor those price expectations so that investors could invest. So the question now here today is, is OPEC Plus a worthy successor of the Texas Railroad Commission and OPEC of, of lore? Now, to be fair, I don't think even the Texas Railroad Commission could have handled uh, the black swan of the pandemic uh, demand collapse. So I, I think that's a problem too big for almost anybody. But the question as we sit here today is, can OPEC plus, can Russia and Saudi Arabia, having been brought back together by President Trump, uh, largely over Easter, put in place cuts, can they play that role? And I think, and on that really depends uh, in some ways the pace of job loss and job recovery in the oil industry. Uh, and investment in our industry as well. And the sad truth is our domestic oil and gas oil production uh, base depends in some way on success of swing producers. And now the only game in town is OPEC+. Plus. So the good news is, from a price stability standpoint, is oh, Saudi Arabia and Russia are back in love again. It's not in love, at least they're, uh, they're dating again. And they're talking and they're cooperating and uh, they're making cuts. And they, they, have a, they have an agreement to continue, if not even maybe deepen the cuts. Uh, the issue, though, now is they want to get the cheaters uh, to comply better. And so what's delaying the OPEC meeting, we, we expect, and uh, we're waiting to hear. They're kind of having a rolling meeting now that they don't meet in Vienna. They're waiting by their computers, and they're having this rolling meeting. And they're trying to get Iraq, especially, which is a big cheater, to, uh, to comply more. And uh, I think that's a good sign, actually, that they want to shore up compliance. And they have a two-year deal. So I think the cautiously hopeful news is, uh, they touched that hot stove in April, and nobody enjoyed a zero oil prices, neither Mr. Putin uh, nor the Saudi leadership, certainly not President Trump, and certainly not you, and certainly not other oil state senators in our oil industry. We don't want to go back to that. I don't think we will, 
Uh, and if anything, this OPEC Plus is trying to shore up discipline and compliance to make sure in case we need more supply management later this year or next, uh, we have it. Kevin, what do you think? Well, I think uh, we're at a moment right now as we're, we're doing this uh, where OPEC is deciding whether or not to extend the cuts that they made in April for an extra month or maybe two months, and then deciding whether or not they're going to look again at doing so in the future. And if you ask why are they doing that, why are the, why are the arbiters of supply having these conversations, it's because they can see supply pretty well, although obviously, as Bob mentioned, there's some fights about who's complied and how much and how soon they're going to make it up. But they don't have anything like that kind of visibility into demand. And it's actually quite hard to see oil demand, even if you are looking inside of a country or a region. Uh, there's a lot of molecules in a lot of places. If you just try to count anything as vast and as, as variegated as oil uh, in all its forms, you realize how difficult the task it is for the statistical agencies. And they don't usually know what the OECD, with the most transparent markets and agencies, has done for two or three months after the fact. So they have to make a decision ahead of time. They have to, they have to try to guess and, and guess that they, they know where things stand. But what they can see is that demand recovery, as brisk as it has been on the road, how little there has been in the sky is still quite alarming. And the unknowns of a second wave are, are still looming above. Plus, there is a whole lot of economic momentum tied up in all these stark and horrible job losses. I mean, this is, this is a tragedy for so many people whose lives have been turned upside down, and their energy consumption patterns aren't going to necessarily right themselves immediately. So we may be overcounting our optimism, even if a lot of folks can get back to work, not everything can jump back into place the way it was. And for OPEC, and for that matter, anyone investing in the oil and gas upstream, the question is really going to be, do you think demand is going to pop back as quickly? Eventually, yes, I agree with Bob completely. We are headed to more oil consumption in the world for the intermediate future. But in the near term, that lack of visibility is the reason OPEC is taking another bite at the apple, if not as, not as big a one, they're chewing it longer, if you will. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the, those of you that, that are, are, are part of the, uh, the, the day-to-day analysis of, of all that's happening within the sector um, have been uh, very plugged in to understanding uh, the issues related to storage and storage capacity. But that was, that was an issue, or that is an issue, that for many, it really kind of hit their, their radar in these past couple months when we realized that capacity was, was, was really a pretty significant choke point. Uh, for us up in Alaska, we had, we had proration um, coming down through TAPS, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, because you have, you've got capacity there in Valdez to hold, but you have to, everything along the chain needs to be working. You ha- need to have those tankers that, that are under contract waiting to move it out so that you've got that capacity, that spare capacity. Let's discuss how this intersects with the conversation. In, in March, I guess it was mid-March, I asked uh, EIA, the Energy Information, Energy Information Administration, to make sure that we're getting timely data on, on U.S. storage uh, capacity. Are you, are you seeing, are you tracking the trends on this? 
what data are you paying attention to when it comes to, to storage and, and our storage hubs? Oh, and I forget who needs to go first on this one. I can, uh, I can Kevin, jump on. Go, like sure. Go ahead. I mean, just first, I, I want to commend your, your, your vision for, for asking them to look at, at the thing that mattered so much. Um, we, we at Clearview have been looking specifically at two areas, the Cushing Storage Facility in Oklahoma, where the West Texas Intermediate Price is set, and also at the Gulf Region Storage, particularly. Uh, and the reasons are that historically those have been problem points where you can start to see what happens when an oil system that, that has to flow can't flow and starts to back up. I mean, a lot of people don't think about, you know, what you do when you have too much of something uh, that you've been thinking about for decades having too little of. Uh, and for a lot of Americans, you could be forgiven. But uh, oil is made to flow. It's a system. Energy is made to flow. Electricity works the same way. You've got problems when you have more electricity than you know what to do with. Uh, and so uh, it creates a, a real pressure on the system, and it's not like you can just throw oil anywhere. Uh, not only would there be environmental challenges, but you'd want to get it back somehow. Uh, and so just putting it anywhere isn't a solution. Uh, and when you run out of storage, you particularly at a price-setting point, uh, like, at, like at Cushing, uh, you end up with a, a massive distortion in the economics of oil, because if there's no place to store it, then the marginal barrel becomes extremely difficult to place. And at some point, you may have to pay someone to take it off your hand. So uh, again, really appreciate the, the vision. We look at capacity utilization. We're glad to see EIA showing that number on a weekly basis. Uh, I think it's good visibility into, into the way things are working. Obviously, more granularity would be better, but we recognize that there's a lot of competitive challenges in getting information from the industry and aggregating it like they do. Yeah. I would just, uh, yes, absolutely second everything Kevin said. He's absolutely right, including about the importance. I mean, storage capacity is like oxygen. You may not think about it until you don't have it, and then it becomes very important. Uh, and how, knowing how much we have is very important. I want to also, with Kevin, commend you, I think, and, and, and Tristan Abbey uh, were helpful in getting EIA to produce those pad level utilization uh, reports for crude is outstanding. If I, uh, maybe for Christmas, I'll ask for product level in, 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 uh, storage, that uh, capacity, because one thing that's going on that's a bit foggy right now is you know, our, our exports uh, seem to be high of crude, of products, but where is it exports or is it, um, is it going into storage somewhere? What is our storage of products? I mean, if you like Kevin said, if you look, we look at, uh, at Cushing, and fortunately where the EWTI price is set, that has started to come off. We're out 51 million barrels. We've come down 10 or so. Uh, but pad three uh, is, is still rising. And the real scary charts, if you want to, is just go look at distillate inventories uh, here and for that matter around the world, and Europe and so forth, are taking off like a rocket. And so uh, product level inventories are also very important. So again, Kevin and I are barrel counters. Uh, a lot of us are barrel counters. Uh, the bane of our existence has always been better data, better data. We've made big leaps and bounds and commend you and EIA for that, uh, and that hopefully we'll continue to do it. And, uh, you know, episodes like this are just reminders about how important excellent, good data, timely data for, uh, is. Yep, we count on it. And um, those who are in the business of, of, of doing this assessment and this analysis um, is we, we sometimes forget 
uh, the great value that they bring to us with the information and the data that they do. Last question for both of you, and this is, is moving a little bit off of, of oil and oil production, but we all know that natural gas production is, is associated with oil production. So how do you see natural gas production moving? Will, will lower oil prices uh, and, and oil investment push natural gas production down? What, what, what's, your, what's your assessment uh, with the impact of oil on, on natural gas production? I'll take a first shot at it. I, I think you got, you, we will see lower production. I don't really disagree with uh, the EIA forecast. Um, you know, uh, we uh, uh, next year down well below uh, you know the 90 uh, nine, or low 90 BCF uh, range. Uh, that'll result from um, yeah uh, lower investment in loan production of, of shale oil. They're co-produced, and so I think we will we will see that. We're also shockingly filling up inventories. I mean, Europe's uh, gas inventories are 73 percent, and they're only 45. Uh, people are talking about negative prices in natural gas. You know, natural gas doesn't have anyone even pretending to play that swing producer role uh, that oil does. It's really hard. It would be very difficult, uh, given the gas market, to do that. So, But it really doesn't have it. It is at the whim of oil. Now, uh, I guess, you know, my, my, my phrase is, paraphrasing St. Saint, uh, Augustine, you know, Lord, make me bullish, but not yet. I think um, later this decade, as oil markets clean up and recover and gas prices and oil prices go up, I think that will, uh, that will improve the economics of gas production. It'll improve the economics, especially of LNG exports, which are terrible right now. I think gas is more expensive, more valuable here than, than in our export destination. So I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I think as oil markets tighten, oil prices rise into a boom cycle. Economics of gas production will will improve, including LNG. So I think there's light at the end of the tunnel, but it may be a pretty long and pretty dark tunnel. Hmm. Okay, you get the final word here. <laughs> well, I I would say that when it comes to gas, you know, none of us ordinary people buy oil. I mean, not not for delivery to our homes. Uh, sometimes heating oil, yes, but not actually crude oil. But a lot of us buy natural gas. And so we have a relationship with the product where we it's easy to understand why a pandemic could seriously change our relationship in terms of demand. Uh, but not all of us realize how much natural gas goes into to chemicals and industrial and use sectors that have also been disabled. And uh, you can run the microwave as many times as you want. You're not going to make up enough electricity use of natural gas to cover the loss of industrial demand in the world because of shutdowns of factories and productive, uh, uh, productive output. So uh, this is a really, a really dire time in, in gas markets for that reason. And the problem with gas is that it, it's very difficult to move and expensive to store. Uh, and uh, it travels, you know, in liquefied form at great cost. So the facilities that America could build uh, to continue its growth in exports, and, and I've been in front of your committee, I've been honored to join you guys to talk about this on several occasions, you know, that future of becoming the, the world's largest liquefaction source and exporter to the world is delayed by this. A lot of the opportunity to make the investment that could create the gateway for American gas to the world is really pushed back by this. Uh, and so, you know, that recovery, when it comes, I think will be welcome. But there's a lot of capital that's going to be sleeping until then. Yeah, you know, when you think about what we have been doing so aggressively over these, these most recent years to, to really 
fill out America's role as, as a growing natural gas export, exporter. And, and, and now you think about the interplay here and how, how we are impacted. So you both have used some, some words that uh, are attention getters. You know, we started off with unprecedented uh, wake-up calls, um, dire, <laughs> dire when it comes to, to, to natural gas. But I, I think we, we do recognize that the, 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 the world of oil is one where volatility um, has been one of the, 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 the key words. And so we're no stranger to, to the highs and lows and, 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 again, the volatility out there in, in the marketplace and in the global marketplace. But um, volatility is one thing, and, and an unprecedented level of, of what we are seeing causes us to appreciate uh, even more the expertise of individuals uh, such as yourself, those who are are continually looking at the numbers, looking at the data, looking at the trends, and, and really trying to give uh, as, as good a guidance as, as we possibly can. So know that I thank you both. Uh, Kevin Book, it's great to have you on, and Bob McNally. Uh, we so appreciate all that you have contributed, your, your wisdom, your analysis. Um, so thank you for being with us, and thank you for those of you who have listened to this episode of Murkowski's Message Podcast. So be safe and healthy out there. Take care, everyone.